this time on the Rolling with New York Mike podcast. I'm trying to understand what it is that makes some people vote for Democrats and then call Republicans racist because we don't want to have people coming into the country illegally, which is all it is. Now, it was always the Democrats that were behind the KKK. The Democrats were behind the Confederacy in the South. It was always the Democrats. Lincoln was the first Republican president. And so how did everything get this twisted? How did things get so turned around? How do we come to this point in our history where we, we're, con- we're confusing black with white? We're confusing day and night? We're confusing good and evil? We, we are. Welcome to Rolling with the most patriotic man I know, my husband. And now, his podcast, Rolling with New York Mike. Get on the ride. All right, it's podcast time. I'm New York Mike, and this is Rolling with New York Mike. Yeah, we're rolling, baby. It's so hot. The only thing that's rolling around here are blackouts. It's... It's crazy. I don't know how people expect that this nation of, what, 320 to 30 million people, we don't even know, because there's probably, I don't know, 8 to 10 million undocumented, uh, in other words, people who are here illegally, aliens from other countries. By the way, not from Mexico. Maybe a couple, but from 180 and 90 other countries around the globe that have come here through our southern border and are here illegally. And yes, they're alien to the United States of America. They didn't come here in any legal fashion, without permits, without passports, without anything that is in the normal course of doing business in some way that's acceptable and normal. Although... Although crossing here illegally is becoming normalized, it it seems to be getting to be the way that is acceptable, at least to half the country. Yeah, at least to half the half the country must accept that as normal because they don't seem to think there's any sort of a border crisis or anything that's you know untoward, alarmingly unusual or bad or problematic or anything. So, yeah, it's just it's crazy out there. It's just nuts, and that's the way it is. And the half the country's that way. Half the other, the other half of the country, call this my half of the country racist because we're not letting all these people into our country. Oh my God! Everything that you do that doesn't meet the approval of the left wing of America, which is the Democrat Party, you may vote for it unwittingly. You may not totally be aware of the Democrat agenda and what their goal of communism. Yeah, you can call it whatever you want to call it. We know what it is. It's it's communism, plain and simple. So we're going to power through what I just saw. By the way, new headphones. I've got to, yeah, we've had some, we're trying to get things straightened out here in Podcastville, USA, (laughs) on the Rolling with New York Mike podcast. Been adjusting and changing for the last couple of years now. Uh, Hopefully getting better. You know, we've, we've had some, we've had some issues to deal with, especially in the last few months, as we've tried to make some changes and become more adaptable. I've been on this New York Mike since the 60s. Yeah, that's right. Going from Brooklyn, New York, 
to Biloxi, Mississippi <laughs> was a, uh, a traumatic change. When you get stationed down in Texas and you're going through boot camp and you do things, well, that's transitional. But when, when I got stationed in Biloxi, it was kind of sort of transitional. It was supposed to be a six-month or something kind of a thing, but I stayed there for over a year. And I became part of the Mississippi culture. I did. I found it to be very much in line with how I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I know that's a stretch. I'm not going to go into a whole big thing about that. And people right away say, well, Mississippi, 1963, Brooklyn, New York, 1963, so much different. Well, actually not, okay? There actually wasn't that much difference. It would be interesting for me to have a kind of a, I don't know, some sort of a meeting of the minds or a sit down with people from that era, uh, you know, going 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 back to the 60s in America and seeing how what the differences were mostly when you you think about the south in the 60s and you think about racism and then you're going to try to tell me that the the north was so much different it was different but it was the same it wasn't as different as you want to think it was yeah black people sat anywhere they want on the bus and they ate in any restaurant they wanted to but there was a difference from where it is or from what it sounds like to what it was like. And and that difference was kind of sort of, it's how people felt about each other in the 60s in New York. Do I think that Jackie Robinson could have made it in the, the Atlanta Braves during the same time frame? He made it with the Brooklyn Dodgers? That's a damn good question. I think it was up to Branch Rickey. I, I think that fans are fans anywhere. And I think that, I, I, I don't know, maybe it's naive of me to say it, but I do think that Atlanta would have embraced Jackie Robinson. When I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, there were pockets of everything. Pockets of Italians, pockets of Jews, pockets of Irish, pockets of Polish, Puerto Rican, black. Now, did we all share and live in the same... Yeah, if you lived in government housing, you did. But if you didn't live in government housing, when I lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant for a while, which is a black neighborhood back then, for sure. I don't know about now, but for sure then. Um, I'd walk through the neighborhood, people look at me like, what in the hell is a white boy doing there? That's, that was crazy. Did I feel it? Yeah, I did. Damn right I did. I knew it. How old was I? 12, 13 years old? I, I understood. I sensed it. I, I, I knew what was going on. When I went down to Coney Island, we had race wars. They weren't race wars. They were territory wars. But it was still. Some territories were Puerto Rican and black, and some territories were Italian and Irish and Greek. And I mean, it's just the way it was. It was different. I mean, I remember walking a block out of my way. I went to my cousin Kenny Jackowitz's house on West 3rd Street. He lived right off Surf Avenue. The Surf Avenue L, the train, went within a foot. That could be an exaggeration, but it ain't a big exaggeration. A foot of his bedroom window. That's the train went right by Kenny's window. I don't know how they built the house that close. It was a, what, how many stories? Four or five story apartment building? Walk up, no elevators. And the train went right. He lived on the second floor, if I remember right. Maybe it was the third floor. And the train went right by. Boom, just like that. And that was Coney Island. So that was Surf Avenue became the Coney Island of famous the winter wonderland, the summertime wonderland, beach and all the rides and, and, and all that. So Kenny lived, I guess you had to walk two blocks 
to get to that surf avenue. But there was surf avenue. And two blocks away was the cyclone. The cyclone was the beginning. Then you walked all the way down to Seabreeze past Nathan's and Raven Hall and Washington, whatever the name of the pool was, all that. And, and you had to go all the way down, I don't know how many blocks, 10 or 15 blocks, had to be almost a mile. So Kenny lived at the beginning of that, two blocks away from the cyclone on Surf Avenue. I walk out of Kenny's house. I'm looking for balls, for, for um, handballs. How'd we look for handballs? You got a wire hanger, you went to the sewers, and you went down in the sewers, you made a little hook on the end of your wire hanger, you put it down in the sewer to pick up the balls that inevitably, when you're playing stickball or anything else with a little balding ball or a Pensy Pinky 53, those, they ended up in the sewer. There was always four or five or six balls in the sewer. So I, I, I was picking up balls in the sewer. And I don't remember if I had a paper bag with me or what I was putting them in. But I'm going from sewer to sewer. And I look up and I got a little too close to the gypsies. Yeah, that's just the way it is. And so there's the gypsies and this gypsy leader is, is standing there. Now, I, I don't know how old I was. If I was 11, 12, I don't know. Maybe I was 13. I don't know. But I was that age, right? And the gypsy leader, he's surrounded by, I don't know, eight, ten of his followers. They lived in, I'll call it now, Gypsyville. I don't know what I called it then. Salada T is the identifying characteristic on the, on the front of the door, the glass door to the stores that they owned and, you know, that they, they proprietized uh, was, it said Solada Tea. I don't know why. I never knew why, but that's what it says. It always said that. And so I, I just meandered by accident into their neighborhood. And that was it. I committed the crime. I was a white kid and I was in gypsy territory and I was about to pay the price. But I don't ask me how I got out of there. I all I know, and I I knew I had a beating coming, and I had this bag of these balls, and this kid is standing in front of me holding his shoe shine box. It's about probably three in the afternoon. He just got back from shining shoes, whatever he did. A little older than me, if I remember right. And you know, I'm being interrogated. What am I doing in their neighborhood? Whatever. whatever. And I, I, I just, I know it's coming. I know it's coming. And what do I do? I push somebody one way, throw a punch another way, take balls and toss them and run like I ran like a thief. And I am, I always was slow. Quick? Yes. Very quick, but very slow when it came to running. <laughs> so luckily for me, I was, I was quick. And, but that's what happened. Now, Bernie Mac, Bernie Mac was the black guy. And Bernie Mac dominated Brighton Beach. Brighton Beach was between, when you, when you go between, you got Coney Island, then you got Brighton Beach, then you got Manhattan Beach, then you got Sheepshead Bay. And so, you know, Brighton, Coney Island was the playground, but Brighton Beach was home to a lot of people. It's also where we went and where we shopped, where we did we went to the movies. There were two movies, The Tuxedo and The Oceana. Boy, I remember those two. How the heck did I do that? The Tuxedo and the Oceana. Oh, my God. So 
those were the movies. One was on Surf Avenue and one was on Ocean Ocean Parkway. I think it was the Tuxedo. I, what's the difference? Am I going to try to figure out which one was which? No, I'm not going to do that. But I think the Tuxedo was on, was, was on Surf Avenue. So and in the later years, that became where the Russians settled. And it's Little Russia. It's been Little Russia since I moved out. I moved out in 61. Yeah. 60-61, and it became Little Russia then, or Little Odessa, or you know whatever names they want to give it that related that whole neighborhood to Russia. But before that, it was it was fragmented, and you had several people dominating the area. So you had Italians, and you had Jews. The Jews are pretty benign when it came to fighting for territory. If you went through a Jewish territory, they try to sell you something. <laughs> They weren't going to kick you out. So, <laughs> but if you if you went in, and I was dating a girl in the Brighton neighborhood, and I go there one night, and it's Bernie Mac. It's his territory. And I we, I knew Bernie Mac really well. Night, good guy, short, built like a fire plug, man. <laughs> and so I get there, and I'm not supposed to be in that neighborhood. It's just the way it is. Did we call it racist? We, no, it was territorial. That's that's what it was. Nothing but territorial. And I was in the wrong territory. That was not my territory. So it was my fault. I was in the wrong neighborhood and I got chased out of that neighborhood. I remember running a flock in some direction. I don't know how I ever got away from these people that were chasing me, man. I just, I never... Looking back, I just don't know how I did it, but I did. And I remember hiding under a car. And I I hid under a car for hours. I don't know what time I left. Let's say a respectable 8.30, no, 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And it wasn't in the middle of winter. I'd say it was maybe September, October. Just cold enough not to be hot, just cold enough to be just okay. Wearing a maybe a heavy shirt, maybe a flannel shirt, not even jacket time. Anyway, I'm under there for hours. I get out from under the car. <laughs> when you stop hearing the voices, you stop hearing the yells, yo, 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 see that white boy? <laughs> Oh, he disappeared, man. <laughs> Just laying there, keeping my keeping my head down. So you don't hear anything for quite a while. You get up, and I get up, and I'm still a bus ride away from from Sheepshead Bay. It's, it is, I'm way outside walking distance. I mean, I could have walked back, but then I'd be walking through two more territories <laughs> that, that I'm taking my... Uh, by by an existential threat as it is to my very existence <laughs> so here i am i just get on a bus which bus of course the surf avenue bus coming from coney island going all the way down surf avenue to wherever it made that left turn to Nostrand Avenue. That's where it was. When Surf Avenue and Nostrand Avenue left on Nostrand Avenue all the way to Avenue U, that was the last stop. I get off at Avenue W. 
that's where I live. And so I get on the bus. And as I get on, I could still, I could, I'm telling you, I don't know what year that was, 1958. I could, I could, I, you could feel the eyeballs. I get on the bus. I'm safe. I feel good. Next thing I know, people are staring at me. I mean, I've been laying under a car on the ground for the last three hours. But that's the way it was. And by the way, where did I go when I got on the bus? Right to the back, the very last seat on the bus, uh, uh, right under the rear, the rear window. Was there always a spot there? Not always, but normally there would be because people, I don't know why, but it seemed like that was my territory. Me and my buds, we would hang at the back of the bus. I have no idea what prompted us to, why we thought that was a place for us. <laughs> I have no idea. Didn't then, don't now. I, I'm, I'm not going to try to reconstruct the zeitgeist of, the, of that era. But when you went down to Mississippi, hanging with the same people, it was different but the same. There wasn't like you couldn't hang out with the black guys. It's like when I got friendly with the people in town, and I did get friendly with the people in town, very friendly. And I never thought I'd, I thought those those guys would be my, my closest friends for life. But that's just the way it is, you know. You're 18 years old, you're going into a, a brand new culture. Everything reminds you of what it was like back when you grew up. And it, it just, yeah, um, the, the kids I was stationed with from New York, Billy Rabbitin, Howie Kagan, there was a handful of others and thought they'd be my best friends for life. They were as good as the best friends I had in school. And I had some good friends in school. So it's just just the way just the way it, it, it is. Yeah, my friend Paul Goff, Steve Bergon, Bertie, these were as close friends as you get in life. And who did we hang out with? When I hung out in Brooklyn, it was Stanley Dickinson, Johnny Leonel. These are black guys in, in, in the projects. And I, they, they were the, the closest friends that I had in those Speedy Bellotto. I mean, these, and so were they much different than the guys I hung out with in Mississippi? Absolutely not. Were the rules different? Yeah, the rules were different. But did they make any more or less sense? Truthfully, no, they didn't. They just did. It's just the way it was. I remember going when I was in Youth House. I got sent up to Youth House. Grand larceny, big time. I'm 15 years old, right up to that limit. I was supposed to go to Warwick when I was 16 until, I don't know if it was 18 or 21, but I'm 16 years old. Now, when you're in Youth House, 1212 Spofford Avenue, for anybody that shared that space with me at any time in life, <laughs> um, you're categorized. You're, you're white, Puerto Rican, black. If you're black, you're very much further categorized by how light or dark your skin was. Not by, not by me, not by the white guys. I don't think we ever saw any difference. I don't think we ever understood. But sometimes you're sitting around with your five or six best, closest buds, and you're talking, and everybody forgets that you're, you're, you're the only white guy in, in sitting around because you don't think about that. It wasn't, you know, we were just talking and then all of a sudden one of the guys looks up and says, oh, yeah, but by the way, don't, don't let that bother you. This is just how we talk. It's like, oh, it didn't bother me. Uh, it didn't bother me one bit. But how they talk about who's light skin, who's dark skin. And, I mean, this is, just, this is just the way the conversation was. So when I look up, I'm, I'm sitting there having lunch and I look up and you see the new, the new guys coming in. Youth House was for boys. There was a equivalent place for girls. 
that was not nearly as populated, by the way, because we used to have dances with them, so we knew. <laughs> but there was, so the, the new guys were coming in, and I look up and I see my buddy Vinny Felicia coming on the lunch line, and I just stand up and I go, Vinny! Oh, I got in trouble for that, baby. But here's Vinny Felicia from the old neighborhood. Vinny lived on East 22nd Street, right up the street from Bedford Park. And I used to hang out at Bedford Park. Bedford Park had parallel bars and a high bar and, I mean, all kinds of stuff, as well as handball courts. So that was my, my hangout of preference because I love working out on the, on the bars. So there's, there's my buddy ben, Vinny. So what does Vinny do? Vinny comes over. Of course, he's, we're, we're in E6. That's where we were, where they put us. E6 was the area, the, the cell block if you were, for the older kids. We were the oldest group, so we had that pod, E6. So Vinny comes up to me, and he says, who's the toughest guy, who's this, what do we got to do to dominate this whole thing? <laughs> Vinny, God bless Vinny. So I tell him, and, and by the way, it was a friend of mine, Tim Tam Tucker. Timmy Tucker was another one of these guys. Matter of fact, he was a little more of a badass than Bernie Mac, but he was that size kind of a guy. Short, not that short, stocky. Bernie Mac was a little shorter than, than Tim Tam, but stocky, tough. He happened to have some big arms too. And so I tell him it's Tim Tam Tucker. So <laughs> so what is what does Vinny want to do? Now it's the dead of winter, by the way. I'll never forget how freaking cold it was. And we had radiators in the rooms. That's how we kept warm. We had radiators. So Vinny decides that comes about, I don't know what time it was. Let's make believe it was 11 o'clock at night. And he comes to get me. And he's going to go into Tim Tam's room and piss on his radiator. That's exactly what he did. And then me and him were going to hold the door shut when they try to escape and that's what we did so was it because tim tam was black tim tam happened to be black so was his roommate me and Vinny. we're white i was there a difference was there a was it were we pre-programmed to be roommates because of it i don't think so i think these things just happen so why am i going through all this because i'm trying to figure out what it is that differentiates Democrats and the Republicans. I'm trying to understand what it is that makes some people vote for Democrats and then call Republicans racist because we don't want to have people coming into the country illegally, which is all it is. Now, it was always the Democrats that were behind the KKK. The Democrats were behind the Confederacy in the South. It was always the Democrats. Lincoln was the first Republican president. And so how did everything get this twisted? How did things get so turned around? How do we come to this point in our history where we, we're, con we're confusing black with white? We're confusing day and night? We're confusing good and evil? We, we are. And you, as a Democrat out there, may say, oh, that's unfair. Oh, you shouldn't. Well, if you call us evil, look at what Biden called. Oh, you're going to say, oh, just MAGA? I'm MAGA Mike. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I'm as MAGA as it gets. I fully and 100% believe in making America great again. 
as great as we ever were and greater than we ever were. I fully believe in America first. Those are Donald Trump's agendas. And whether you like it or not, there is nothing bad, nasty, derogatory, or in any way negative about either putting America first or making America great again. There, it just nothing is. And so you can make it that way if you want to follow a Joe Biden agenda and, and say that MAGA is somehow, I don't know, racist, bent, wrong in some way, shape or form. Can't prove it by me. There's no way. I think it's the perfect political agenda for America. And it's an agenda that I very much respect and follow. So I, I don't want to hear people denigrating me in some way that's... Listen, if, if you want to say you don't like capitalism and you're a communist, especially if you're one of my errant relatives who follow Bernie Sanders, now yeah, if you want to say you're a communist, what, socialist, communist, whatever you want to call yourself, it's the same thing to me. You're either an American capitalist or you're something else. So I'm, I'm, I'm fine if that's what you want to call yourself. It's fair game. That's how you feel. Do I agree with it? Of course I don't agree with it. Do I think it's stupid? I'm not going to call people names. I'm just going to tell them that I disagree and why. I disagree with communism because communism dictates a dictatorship, an authoritative type of government, the kind of government that obviously Joe Biden believes in. It's the way he's running the country. And so that, or, or, or in Newsom, where, where do we come off agreeing with somebody that says that you can't sell a new car in this state after 2035, that 80% of the cars have to be electric by what, 2030? I, I, whatever stages he's put it in. No more new combustion engines after 2035. That's just a little over 12 years. So if you have a car business, you're done. Oh, okay, you can sell electric cars. How many electric cars can or will the grid be able to handle by 2035? Has anybody contemplated that? Has anybody done the math? Has anybody done that math based on re crunching real numbers? I don't think so. By the way, no more motorcycles. Oh, yes, yeah, there's a handful of electric bikes out there. There's a handful. Now, the last electric bike, which I thought was as good as it's as good as it gets, was the EV, the Harley Davidson electric vehicle. Great bike. You could ride it for about 100 miles and then you got to charge it for eight hours. That's just the way it is. Somebody want to call up and dispute me on that one and say, oh, you could do 110 miles. Oh, you only have to charge it for six and a half or seven. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can get you can get as technical as you want. Facts are facts. So it's it's just not anything that's practical. It's just not. It's not. And that's just the way it is. So are they going to so vastly improve it by 2035 that it will have dominated and taken over the motorcycle market at that point? By the way, what? I sold that business two years ago. At that time, they were selling for $30,000. Yeah. I mean, come on. So what do you expect to happen? I, at last count, there were about 60 Harley dealers in California, almost 700 nationwide. Now, I know that a lot of dealers have gone out of business in the last couple of years, be it COVID, be it bad policies, 
based on national policies, state policies, or corporate policies. I, I, I don't know, you know, uh, is it supply chain issues? They had to close the factory last summer. I mean, there's a lot of uh, good reasons to go around why the business isn't what it was. So being out of it, I could just be grateful and thankful that somebody cared enough to come in and buy San Diego Harley-Davidson. And by the way, I only wish them the best. Anything I could do to help them in their endeavors is uh, I, I, I've offered it often and will continue to. It's a tough business. It always was, and it's it's tougher now than it's ever been. But with a Gavin Newsom, Newsom, whatever, announcing no more internal combustion engines after 2035, the value of the fossil fuel fossil-fueled <laughs> vehicle business goes down year after year. And with only 12 years to go, it loses something like 8.5% every year. And and that's going to accelerate, accelerate. So call it, what, 10% each year on going down by the year 7 or 8 when it's only got 4 or 5 years to go? It'll be going down by... 25 or 30%. It'll, it'll, it'll eventually be worthless. So what, what do you do now? Do you sell now while you still have value or some perceived value? Or people say, nah, it's not going to happen. Let's not worry about it. Or do you wait? Do you wait three, four, five years when you get so close to it that it seems much more like a reality and it depletes the value of the business in a, in a much realer way? I, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend to know the answer to that. But I'm, I'm going to say that my guess is you put it on the market at some level now and you hope it sells at that level. Otherwise, you're going to have to roll with it for a few more years. It's just, and I've said this from the very beginning when people, people used to ask me, you know, what do I think about this, this new engine, this new this, new that. And I said, look, I, I've never worried about the vagaries of the marketplace. It's never been a concern. Whether they make a, a great bike one year or have a great paint scheme the next year or all these little things. These are done by the motor company. And we're going to either reap or, or regret those rewards, you know, just based on the marketplace. But I always worry about the government. And I always did. From helmet laws to all the other things that the government does to make life difficult to impossible for every business, especially businesses like the motorcycle business. It was especially sensitive to government rules and regulations. And so... It was always the government. And now the ultimate government coup de grace, as far as the business is concerned, no more internal combustion engines, no more gasoline engines, no more fossil fuel after 2035. That's, That's as bad as it gets. And so if you're in the motorcycle industry, if you're in that world and you're in California or one of those states that pretends that they're going to follow California, uh, I, I just don't know how the citizens of these states fall in place. I don't understand how the citizens of California do it or why. There's no fight back, these people. I mean, I, I look at some of the leaders 
of California. I mean, for the last, what, I've been here for almost 40 years now. And, okay, call it 30, 37 years, 38 years, whatever. And I can't understand it. But the citizens seem to reelect one liberal politician after another, one Democrat after another. For what, I don't know. For why, I don't have, I don't have a clue. It makes no sense to me. The crime, the how difficult it is to earn. Look at the homeless problems in California. Look at the recidivism. People that commit crimes over and over and over again. I mean, they're back on the streets. Boom. Whether it's a no cash bail or whether it's for however they do it. I mean, I look, I since Rodney King, Rodney King going over 100 miles an hour, high on cocaine. Yeah, baby, high on cocaine. I mean, that was Rodney King. Were they able to hold him down, keep him down? No. So somebody filmed them beating the crap out of the guy. Well, that's life. When you chase a guy through the streets of Los Angeles at over 110 miles an hour, endangering your life, and then you finally get the guy and he's so high that you can't can't bring him down, you you have to do what you got to do, that's what you got to do. And of course, he was acquitted at trial, and then the federal government came in and said that they violated his civil rights. Civil rights! What civil rights? does a criminal have? I mean, you're committing a crime. What are we, the citizens of this state and this country, but what are we doing by accepting the fact that somebody could be committing a crime, robbing, stealing, beating somebody, driving over 100 miles an hour recklessly with total disregard for the the lives of fellow human beings. And yet the police in their efforts to arrest them, to stop them, are violating their civil rights? What's that all about? How do we reconcile that that's okay? The only way that you're going to stop a criminal who's committed to committing whatever crime they're going to commit, they're committed to robbing that bank. They're committed to going recklessly through the streets of L.A. They're committed to endangering the lives of every fellow citizen they happen to come in contact with. That's what they're committed to. And you think that you're going you're gonna to be able to stop them in any way that doesn't violate their quote-unquote civil rights? They gave up those civil rights. We have an, a, an agreement. You have certain rights, inalienable rights in this country, rights granted to you by our Creator, granted to you by God, but you can't be committing crimes and still feel entitled to those rights. You just can't. If you commit a crime and you're found guilty by a jury, you're going to jail. You're going to go to a, what, six by eight, eight by 10, seven by nine, whatever, cell block, where you'll have no rights for some period of time as determined by a judge and a jury. You've given up those rights. How do we, how do we come to this place a history where the rights of criminals are even equal let alone have more weight than the rights of victims where how do we get here and why are we here and what are we doing about it i think we should be paying attention to these to these these elections that are coming up november 8th so today is the 7th so we're talking two months Really, two months from tomorrow, September, October, November, boom, 60 days. 
from November 8th. We need to be very careful about who we elect going forward on November 8th. And if, if you want to celebrate and if you want to put Democrats in office, I think you need to really think long, hard, and carefully about what and why you're about to do what you're doing and how it's going to affect your life, your neighbors, your family, your children. How, how are you going to affect our lives by furthering this Democrat agenda that seeks equity? What is equity? What makes you think that having run the race, that somehow you're going to get to do it over under different circumstances that's going to share the trophies with a wider range of people. I don't know how else to frame it. I don't know how else, I don't know how else to, to put it out there. We want everybody to have a, a fair shot. Every, you know, Biden goes ahead and talks about paying taxes and he wants everyone to have a fair shot and everybody needs to pay their fair share. Why are you hiring 87,000 more IRS agents to audit people? Who do you audit? Do you audit people that didn't make X amount? What's, what's the number? Because it ain't 400,000 and it ain't 300,000 and it's not 200,000 because those people are auditable. That's who you go after. You go after all the way down to 75 and a hundred thousand dollars. That's what, and every single business. And those people are vulnerable. Those people are going to have the cost and expense of their lives is going to be increased exponentially because of that audit. That quote-unquote threatened audit and it's been threatened that's what you do when you hire 87,000 IRS agents you are threatening everybody out there who owns their own business with an audit because that's how you justify and pay for 87,000 new IRS agents that's exactly how it's done. You audit everybody who's auditable, everybody you can, and you extract every nickel, every dime of taxable money out of their pockets that you could get. That's how you justify it. That's how you offset the cost. That's what you do. You do not exclude people who make under $400,000 a year. That's not going to happen. That's a lie. It was a lie when he said it. It's a lie now. and It'll be a lie then. Mark my words. I've been talking about inflation for going on two years. Since Biden got elected, I've been talking about inflation. Got elected. He, he, he was inaugurated in January, February. By March... By March, I was talking, by March of 2020, I was talking, or 2021, I was talking seriously about inflation. And it's just been going full tilt ever since. And it's far from done. And the measures that the Fed has to take to offset inflation are costing us all, all dearly. The interest rates. What we have to pay for, well, what we have to pay for interest rates when we buy a new home or we rent a home. Unfortunately, the, the, the value of our homes are going down and they'll continue to drop as the interest rates rise. But the cost of replacing that home goes up. There's not enough inventory out there. The price of wood and all the rest of the supplies that you need to build that home are, are just rising 
at an incredible rate. So it, it's one thing is not offsetting the other. It's it's just it's not it's not working. It's not like yeah, it costs more to build a house, so the house is worth more. It doesn't work that way because it costs more to own the home than the cost to build the home. And that's wherein the problem lies. There is no exact science. Just like there was no science to COVID. There was make-believe science. And just like there's no science to this so-called climate change. I listen to these people. I watch the news. I watch some of these talk shows. I listen to these people. Climate change, climate change, climate change. As, as if, if the temperatures rise two degrees Fahrenheit over the next hundred years, it's going to be a disaster for America. It's, it's as if the heat wave we've, we've experienced this summer nationwide, and we have, is caused by man-made, what, carbon dioxide? I mean, the, the, the climate has been changing. The temperatures have been rising and dropping over my lifetime and longer. It's been going on and it'll continue going on. And it's going to continue changing. Do we want clean air and clean water? Absolutely. Should we be doing everything we can? Absolutely. But should we, should we be sacrificing our economy so that climate change will have as little effect as possible? No, you don't sacrifice your economy, especially when your adversaries, Russia, China, Iran, they're not, they're not sacrificing their economy. So we're going to have another podcast in a few days. I'm rolling with New York Mike and rolling, trying to figure out how Democrats roll. And if you roll with Democrats, tell me why. Oh, is it Roe v. Wade? Because I can see that. I can see people saying, I, I, want, I want the ability to have an abortion anytime, anywhere. Don't you think it's appropriate to have some restrictions? I mean, Roe v. Wade, I, I, I think was limited to the first... I, I don't know. I'm not a recall. I'm not a professional on Roe v. Wade. But I, I thought it was like during the first 26 months or some time frame. I didn't think it was up to the birth of the child, which now, according to most Democrats I hear, is exactly what it is. So are we entitled to go state by state and have certain restrictions based on common sense and maybe what we know now more than what we knew 49 years ago? Do you think that's maybe we need to re-examine things and it's not so horrible? I sure hope you do because these things need to be re-examined from time to time. And do you think that maybe the rhetoric of people like Joe Biden need to be adjusted a little bit so, so we can't accuse them of just outright lying about the facts? Because that's pretty much what he's doing right now. Yeah, we need to change things in this country. We need to get it right. No, we don't need 100%. It would, it would be nice to have a large majority of Americans in agreement. It really would be. And when you're talking about a crisis at the border, runaway inflation, when you talk about energy policy, when you talk about trade policies, when you're talking about the things that we've been talking about for the last almost two years now, you would think that we'd have a lot more people in agreement, notwithstanding Roe v. Wade, notwithstanding the fact that there were changes made to both sides. Should we not agree that some of these changes are going to be necessary and we all won't like 
all the changes that are made, but we should all spend a little more time talking about things like changes to Roe v. Wade and what is appropriate in, in that regard, because clearly there are things that are appropriate to be changed with regards to abortion policy in America. We've come a long ways since 1973, and we should be acknowledging that. We should be accepting that as fact and accepting the fact that that changes based on science are appropriate. I'm New York Mike. You're listening to Rolling with New York Mike. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being there. Thank you for subscribing. If you don't subscribe, consider it. We would really appreciate it. And we'll be back. We're trying to get back on track, even with all the new equipment and everything else that's going on. We're trying to get back on track twice a week. I'm New York Mike. We'll we'll get it done, if not this week, next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Rolling with New York Mike. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to keep this podcast rolling.